Galatians chapter 2, we're going to read the first 10 verses, and then we're going to dive into the text. Verse 1, chapter 2, Paul writing to the churches of Galatia, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel, which I preached among the Gentiles but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren, secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, For he, speaking of Jesus, who worked effectively in Peter, for the apostleship to the circumcised, that being the Jew, also worked effectively in me, Paul, towards the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. Now, following his introduction, Galatians chapter 1, Paul very quickly makes a transition in his letter to the Galatians by recounting his first encounter with the very crew of false brethren who had come to Galatia peddling this gospel distortion. According to Acts chapter 15, these same men, had, quote, come down from Judea to the church in Antioch to teach the brethren that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And Paul's point, and kind of rehashing a bit of history here, is to make it known to these Galatians that he was not only familiar with these men who had come behind him, but that their very point of contention this debate about what grace is really all about had been settled. Yes, this might be a new controversy to the churches in Galatia, but for Paul, he's, this is a second rodeo. This is the second showdown. He's already dealt with them years before. And in recounting the events, Paul is making three important points. First, Paul is making it clear. He's making it known substantiating a point he's already made that the gospel message that he had received and thus he was preaching came directly from Jesus and had not been influenced in any way by the apostles. It's a point he's made over and over and over again in his uh, introduction. It's the essence of what he's communicating when he says, for those who seem to be something, they added nothing to me, not, not in the sense that, that they weren't profitable or they weren't brothers or, or Paul's kind of giving a backhanded insult or compliment. 
He's just saying like what they were bringing, I already knew. Like they didn't, they weren't adding anything. They weren't correcting anything. What Jesus had given me, Jesus had also given them. And then Paul kind of walks this tightrope. He's making it clear that the gospel he got was from Jesus, not influenced by the apostles. But on the flip side, while he's making this case, Paul is also reiterating the fact that the apostles, and he specifically gives you three names, Peter, James, and John, who were pillars. They had not only rejected the heresy that had been peddled by the same men who had now come to Galatia, but that these men completely agreed with the gospel message that Paul had been preaching, this message of grace, period. And so you understand the balancing act. I didn't receive my gospel from the apostles. I received it from Jesus, but the apostles, when they heard about my gospel, were totally on board, totally agreed. Everything was above board and consistent. Paul not only explains that Titus, who was with me being a Greek, was not compelled to be circumcised by, obviously, the arguments being made by these false brethren, but the apostles' failure to find Titus's circumcision necessary only served to validate their rejection of this position, this grace and or grace but distortion. When it was all over, Paul makes it clear, right? That they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. And you can imagine subsequently these heretics, they gave the right foot of fellowship. Thirdly, Paul's third point is that he affirms that there is only one gospel. One gospel, both for the Jew and for the Greek, both for the Jew and for the Gentile. One gospel for all men. Look at it again. He says, the gospel for the uncircumcised, the Gentile. Well, it was committed to me as the gospel. It's the same word. It's the same uh, setup in the structure. The same message for the Jew was given to Peter. And then just to make sure he qualifies it, for he who worked effectively in Peter, for his apostleship, apostleship to the circumcised was doing the same thing in me towards the Gentile. One Jesus, one message for all men. As we've mentioned before, these men who had come to Galatia, they were preaching this, this grace and do these things, or this grace but don't do these things, gospel distortion. They were teaching the Gentiles that the true essential nature of salvation was, yes, Jesus, and the work that Jesus did on the cross to atone from our sins, but it was added to the maintaining of circumcision and the obedience to the dietary laws. Yes, give your life to Jesus, but also be circumcised and eat kosher. Because Paul had confronted this heresy in Acts 15 which I would reference you to last Sunday's Bible study and our prologue to Galatians for a more expansive understanding of why Acts 15 is so important for the book of Galatians. But while Paul has already addressed this heresy, at this juncture, because he's already tangled with these folks, he calls them for what they are. He uses a very strong phrase. He calls them false brethren. And then he lays out their intentions, doesn't he? He makes it clear what their plan, what their purpose, why they were in Galatia to begin with. He says that the liberty that they had in Christ, they were wanting to steal from them, leading them back into 
bondage. Bondage. Liberty back into bondage. In the Greek, this word liberty, it carried with it a very specific connotation. Paul doesn't use this word on accident. He uses it very particularly for what the word would communicate to a rather Greek audience. In Greek literature, this word liberty spoke of a very unique legal transaction by which a slave, a slave was purchased, was redeemed, not by a man, a mere mortal man, but instead through the intervention of a god. This tied in a lot with Greek mythology and Greek legend. This word liberty, it communicated that someone was being freed from their slavery, not by a man, but instead by a god. It's what the word means. As the slave could obviously not provide the necessary funds to get out of bondage, this god would pay the debt the slave owed into the temple treasury and then was given a receipt, which is nice for accounting purposes. I guess, you know, there's the God IRS that you got to deal with. But he would receive a receipt that would contain these two words, that the purchase, that the expenditure was, quote, for freedom. What made this transaction then so unique was that because the individual had been redeemed by a God, thus making that individual the property of that God, no mortal man then ever had the right, the legal right or legal standing, to ever enslave that individual again for any reason. The God paid the debt for freedom, and that person was free. And this is the word liberty, the liberty they had in Christ. You see, in using this word, Paul is stressing to his Galatian audience the completeness and the totality of the liberty they had been given by Jesus. The freedom provided in Christ's atoning work possessed both a momentary and comprehensive characteristic indicating this, and it's important, that it was a freedom once and for all never to be reversed. If you recall Jesus' final words on the cross, as he's there atoning for the sins of the world, he cries out in the Greek before breathing his last, the word tetelestai. Literally, it is finished. It's done. It's over. Through his death, our sinful debt has been paid in full. It's complete it's comprehensive, it's never to be reversed, no man can take it away. His sacrifice was made for freedom, specifically yours and mine, permanent freedom. You can understand why then Paul calls these men who are trying to take this freedom away and replacing it with bondage, false brethren, fake Christians, not a part of the fold. It's from Paul's perspective, no man had the right or legal standing to re-enslave a person Jesus died to set free. As Jesus so defiantly declared to the religious leaders in John 8, verse 36, Jesus said, if the Son makes you free, then what? You are free indeed. Now, before I get to an issue of controversy, I think it would be helpful to take a moment and just explain 
what Jesus has actually freed us from, and therefore the underlying purpose behind our newfound freedom or liberty. Keep in mind, the purpose of the law was purely diagnostic. It was like an MR machine. It gave you a great scan of everything wrong, but it didn't provide any type of remedy, no solution. Really good at diagnosing a problem, no power to address it. You see, the perfect law of God was given to man for a purpose, to reveal to man how far he had fallen short of God's glory. The law of Moses towered over humanity, declaring unquestionably that no man could ever, ever be good enough, and therefore that all men were deserving of death and judgment as a result of their rebellion against God. The law was a diagnostic scan that said, and pardon the expression, you're screwed completely and utterly. Nothing you're going to do to remedy it. Because the law set a standard that no man could ever measure up to. You know, and we often, we think we're a good person using a faulty diagnostic. Like, if, if I were to ask, how many of you are a good, a good person? Most of you will raise your hand, and that's a failure of the pastor to communicate that you're not. <laughs> but if you were to say, I'm a good person, you're reaching that conclusion with a faulty diagnostic, because what you're really saying is you're saying, okay, I might not be perfect, but I'm good because I'm not as bad as that person at the end of the row. And if it's just two of you, that means you're both and that dynamic. It's a faulty diagnostic. If, if you really want to know how good you are, compare yourself instead to Jesus, who fulfilled the law, who was the only one perfect, the only one good. And I don't care who you are, you might not even believe in God, but what you know of Jesus, you don't match that particular standard. You see, the law set a standard intentionally that no man could ever live up to, which makes the law, by its very nature, kind of a punk. Like, the law is condemning. Like, no one ever stands at the law and feels good about themselves. You stand at the law and you're like, man. I've got problems. Like, especially when Jesus like added a whole nother level where it's like, yeah, okay, you say don't commit murder, but it's not just about the activity, it's about the heart. So if you've ever been angry, you've committed murder. And you're like, what? Like, I've never committed adultery, but Jesus is like, if you've ever lusted, you can check that box as well. And you're like, ah! Like, the law makes it clear that you're a sinner, that you've fallen short. And it's condemning as a result because the law demands from you a debt no one could ever justify. The law declares all unrighteous before God and sentences us all to hell. The Bible says none are good, no, not one. And yet, through Jesus' atoning death on the cross, he did something important for you and for me. He satisfied the debt of death demanded by the law. For the wages of sin is what? Death. The law made it clear right from the beginning. In the Genesis account, you eat of the fruit, what happens? You're going to die. It's death. 
So when Jesus died on the cross, Jesus satisfied a debt you and I couldn't pay, demanded by the law, meaning this, that if we're found in Christ, and note Paul used that phrase, in Christ, if Jesus has freed us from a debt we couldn't pay, we're now free from both the law's requirements and its condemnation because the law does something interesting now. Whereas the law originally condemned us because we owed a debt we couldn't satisfy. Because our debt has been satisfied, the law now gloriously declares you and I righteous before God. It's still the same diagnostic. It's the same MR machine. Without Christ, you're in the MR machine. The doctor's like, you're going to die. You're filled with cancer. There's nothing you're going to do to fix it. But in Jesus, because our sin has been atoned for, because it's been paid for, we enter back into the diagnostic machine. And what does the law say? You get the clean bill of health. You're golden. You're right before God. It's awesome. This is why Paul would boldly declare in Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation. The condemnation that the law brings, there is no condemnation. Why? To those who are in Christ Jesus. And this makes sense. You see, in Christ, we are all outlaws. Why? Because the law has already fulfilled its role in our lives. Through God's grace, period, his unmerited favor given to us through Jesus and what Jesus did on the cross, you and I have been made right, righteous before God. And today he sees each of us just as if I'd never sinned. So because what Jesus did on the cross, I'm perfect, I'm right, I'm justified. The law still does that work. It declares me clean. And yet, always remember, our liberty from the law has a purpose. Where is the law demanded we all live in such a way in order to please God? A, a list of rules, do's and don'ts. Do these things to live a life pleasing to God. Don't do these things to live a life pleasing to God. Jesus has now freed us from this demand by extending to us God's favor. We don't have to earn it. We're given it so that now we can live a life pleasing to him. The law demanded I live a life to please God. Jesus enables me and provides me the freedom to live a life to please God. Think of it this way, because it changes the whole dynamic. Isn't it true that love is a much more powerful influencer of human behavior than the law? Like love moves a heart in a much different way than the law. I'll give you an easy example to this. You can always tell when like a 23, 24-year-old man has a love interest because all of those life changes his parents have been preaching to him for years magically remedy themselves overnight. There's a girl in the mix. So now he brushes his teeth and he takes a shower, and he shaves every once in a while. Like he's beginning to get responsible. I mean, mom and dad have been yelling down into the basement for like 10 years, get your life together, you're a loser. 
And then they find a woman that they're trying to impress. It's like, man, I got to get a job. <laughs> like they clean up all of the garbage out of their car. They even clean it. Like none of these things a young man will do on his own. You can place all the law you want, parent. It ain't going to happen. Which is why you need to find that young man a woman. Because it will happen overnight. And this is what's key. It'll happen naturally. It's not something that's forced. It's not conjured. Beyond this, isn't it true demands yield greater relational resistance, whereas unmerited kindness often produces relational reciprocation? Like, like let me give you just another example. Fellas, if you and your wife are, let's say, having intimacy issues at home, try this. Go home and make a bunch of demands of her and see how that works. <laughs> You're going to find that that does not produce a positive reciprocation. It's the couch, if you're lucky. Objects being thrown. Like, like it doesn't work. Instead, isn't it true that it's only love demonstrated through kindness that can soften a hardened heart? You see, this is what grace, period, accomplishes in each of us. Grace frees me. It frees a person to obey God. Not because I have to, but because I want to. Like my heart's changed. Where is the law demanded that we all work hard to live the right way? God's grace enables each of us to live the right way. Because we have to know, but because it's a natural reciprocation of our personal relationship with Jesus. This is why the accusation that grace, period, that grace alone, that grace enough is dangerous because it could maybe provide a license for sin is not only baseless, but that accusation, that fear, that danger, it actually reveals a fundamental misunderstanding as to the true nature of grace itself. You can't be worried about it if you really understand grace and what grace does and the freedom grace allows. Jesus did not die on the cross so that you could remain in rebellion against God. Like, spoiler alert. Like, Jesus didn't offer himself on the cross so that you could still stay addicted to pornography, or you could cheat on your wife, or you could get hammered and drive around. Like that was not his intention. That was not the plan. Jesus died on the cross for this reason, not so that we could remain in rebellion against God, but so that we might enjoy communion with God. Forced behavioral modification through laws imposed was replaced with a natural behavioral modification yielded in a relationship with Jesus that we can now enjoy. I, I, I had a friend, we were in a conversation, and we were talking about another pastor. And I'll, I'll leave all the names out of it because it's not relevant. But, but I said, hey, what do you think of this guy? You know, pastors, we love to gossip about each other. 
I said, what do you think? What do you think about this guy? And, and this was his response. He goes, he goes, I think he takes grace too far. And, and I sat back and I just kind of thought about that for a moment. And I thought, I know that's not how he intended it, but that might be the greatest compliment you could give someone. Because the truth is that when you understand grace and what grace is and what grace does, you can never, ever, ever go far enough. Ever. Sadly, there are those who try to build the argument that while all of this may be true, this outlaw concept is still misguided because the law, they'll claim, can play an important role in the life of the Christian. And this is how they set this up. Yes, all the things you're saying, Zach, are true, but let me present a dynamic. What about the Christian who's walking in blatant sin? You see, the law for that individual still plays an important role, man. The law, it's there. It's to bring them back to Jesus. If you heard that type of reasoning and that type of logic, and yet, while I understand it, I completely disagree with it, and here's why. This approach presents a tragic and misguided idea and result because it focuses a Christian's attention on the wrong thing. You see, when the law is used to address sin and the life of the believer, I have found that one of two terrible results tend to occur in that person's life. One, if you use law to address sin and the life of a believer, it leads to the condemnation of the believer. The law, it hammers home the reality that I'm not good enough, that I don't measure up, that I'm sinful. The law spits in my face, says, you let Jesus down. Have you ever sat back and thought, man, created me, died for me, and I can't even live for him, man. I'm a loser. I'm squandering it all away. I don't deserve this. In your sin, have you felt the weight of condemnation? Understand that the weight of condemnation is coming not from Jesus, and it's not coming from grace. It's not coming from what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus didn't die on the cross so you can feel miserable about yourself. He died to set you free. He died to liberate you. It's the law that condemns. But then this is the other thing that the law does when it's used in the life of a believer in sin. For the analytical person, what ends up happening is if it's not condemnation, which doesn't make sense because Paul said, there's therefore now no condemnation, right? It can also do this. It can lead to the believer's excusal of sin. And this is how this works. You bring the law up. I'm in sin, blatant sin. And you bring the law up. You know what? You, it's the diagnostic tool. That's cool. Let's take the scan, dog. You ripping on all my sin, all my problems, all my mistakes. That's fine. I get you. Let's do this scan thing. Because guess what? Jesus died on the cross. It's complete, man. I'm free. Look at me. I'm righteous before God. And you know what? He is. And what ends up happening 
is because we often fall back to the law as a diagnostic, but the really smart Christian's like, yeah, you can use that as a diagnostic. Guess what? Covered in the blood of Jesus, man. Back off. And then there's now another gospel distortion that rears its ugly head. This grace, so I could do anything. If you're going to use the law, I'm righteous. Bad move. I just trumped you. Don't you feel stupid? You see, this is why instead of directing a believer in sin to the law, we should instead direct that person to the cross. See, I understand the thought of using law for the believer in sin, but the law never, the law never had a remedy for me ever. Before Christ, after Christ, it doesn't fix anything. What fixes something? It's what fixed me to begin with, and it's what I should keep coming back to for fixing. It's Jesus. You see, when we get our eyes back to Jesus and the source of our right standing before God, which is his amazing grace, it's then impossible to stand in condemnation, right? What? what why should I feel condemned? Because man, holy cow, what he did for me, that sets me free, that liberates me. His love draws me back. Like it doesn't hammer me. It woos me. So I don't, I don't deal with condemnation if I come to the cross. And, and not only that, but it's impossible to also continue in sin. The sin he liberated me from through his sacrifice. You come to the law, you can either be condemned or feel self-righteous. But you come to Jesus, you can't feel self-righteous. It's his righteousness. And you can't feel condemned because he set you free. Point the sinner, not to the law, but back to Jesus. And yet, there is still an underlying question that we need to answer in light of these things. Why would these false teachers prefer the Galatian believers to be in bondage to the law as opposed to the liberty provided in Christ? Like, like why would we care at this point? Like, if this is so awesome and so glorious and so radical, so revolutionary, why would anyone want bondage instead of liberty? Well, here's the answer. I have found that legalism within a church community often grows in the petri dish of fear, not faith. More often than not, people intentionally add ands and buts to God's freeing grace. And they don't do it necessarily like to limit the liberty provided by Jesus' work on the cross. But they do this. They add these things to safeguard against the abuse of that liberty. It's like this. While grace gets the party started, it's the law that keeps the partiers in check. Let me give you an example how fear of liberty leading to sin uses the law to restrict liberty in the sneakiest of ways. You might be able to, to, to relate to what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to present here, but I have found that the legalists love to play this game. The you're free, but you really shouldn't game. It goes something like this. As a Christian, 
you're free to drink alcohol. But you really shouldn't because you could become an alcoholic or cause a weaker brother to stumble. As a Christian, you're free to dance, but you really shouldn't because you might stir up, you know, sexually immoral feelings that you won't be able to control. You might be free to dance. You shouldn't for not that reason, but because you can't dance. <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll hear this. As a Christian, you're free, right? You're free to have non-Christian friends, but you really shouldn't because these relationships might lead you down the slippery slope away from Christ. As a Christian, you're free to dress casually at church, but you really shouldn't because it could foster a culture of immodesty among the people of God. As a Christian, you're free to watch R-rated movies or listen to secular music, but you really shouldn't because it might negatively corrupt your thinking. As a Christian, you're free to smoke cigars or hookah, but you really shouldn't because it might tarnish your ability to be an effective witness for Jesus. And while all of these things are noble considerations, the entire approach is founded upon a fear of what could, might, or may happen when people are allowed to enjoy the liberties they have in Christ instead of faith that the liberator knows what he's doing by setting us free. Not only is it true that any limitation of liberty is in, it, is in and of itself a measure of bondage, but here's the kicker. The what could, might, or may happen when other people enjoy their liberties is in no way your business. It's none of your concern. And this is where faith comes in. While the Bible is clear, the freedom yielded through Christ's sacrificial atonement does not in any way provide a license to sin. God's grace undoubtedly liberates the individual to follow Jesus according to their own conscience. No one but the liberator has the right to limit liberty. See, being an outlaw church does not mean we turn a blind eye to sin. That's not what we're saying. As a matter of fact, it's our biblical job to address sinful behavior. Why? Because it's inconsistent with grace, period. It's an affront to grace, period. It doesn't jive. But being an outlaw church does mean that it's not our job to limit freedom in the fear of what could, might, or may happen. Like what happens when you engage in freedom is Jesus' responsibility. Why? Because he's the God that set you free. You're his property. And thus, you're his responsibility. You see, the underlying point Paul is driving home is that if Christ sets a person free, no one other than Christ has the right to say how that person should or shouldn't enjoy their liberty. And in order to illustrate this reality, Paul is now going to fast forward his narrative just a few weeks from the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15 to a situation that took place when Peter had come to Antioch. Verse 11, 
Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, Paul says, I withstood him to his face. Whoa. Easy there, Paul. Because he was to be blamed. Whoa. The Pope's not infallible. I don't know. That's what the text said. I'm just pointing it out. For before certain men came from James... Peter would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, Peter withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas, no, not Barnabas, was carried away with their hypocrisy. It should be pointed out that Antioch, this church, Antioch in Syria, was Paul's home church, and it was rather unique. Historically, in the first century, most of the churches were either predominantly Jewish, a.k.a. the church in Jerusalem, or they were predominantly Gentile, the churches in Galatia. Antioch fit this weird category because we know it was about half Jewish and half Gentile. Like imagine the excitement of this church with the apostle Peter coming to town. I mean, that had to have been, been awesome. I mean, most of these people have only heard the stories of Peter. Peter, did you really walk on water? Yeah, man, I totally did. Is it also true you sank? <laughs> yeah, it is. Is it true when they were arresting Jesus, you pulled out your sword and attacked a little kid? And then like cussed out a, a little girl later when they were... Yeah, thanks for pointing that out. Glad that's in scripture. Like, having Peter there would have been a blast. The stories, feeding of the 5,000, just hearing all of these things from Peter. But then imagine that some dynamics play out, and then you have this Titan, Peter, and this Titan, Paul. Like, it's, aside from Jesus, like the two most influential people in Christianity, then and like now. Paul coming up to Peter in front of everyone and like throwing down, like getting in his face, calling out Peter. Now, in order to understand what, what set Paul off, you need to unpack what really happened that caused the reaction. According to Paul's account, during the first part of Peter's visit, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when certain men came from James... Peter changed his behavior, withdrew and separated himself by now no longer eating with the Gentiles. And keep in mind, the table, the act of sharing a meal in Middle Eastern culture, it's much different than the way that we view food today. Like for most of us, like our meals are totally predicated upon two criteria, speed and price, right? You can give me a burrito with, with Doritos in it. I'm in. In like three minutes, I'm there. Speed and quality, like I'm into that. But that's not how it worked in this culture. You see, the table was the center of community. It was the center of fellowship. They didn't have TV. Like this was a, a cool experience, eating a meal. And this culture it was slow. It was methodical. It was this process that was actually more focused on the interpersonal connections, the relationships being fostered than it was actually the food. Like aside from this, you didn't share a meal with just anyone. 
First, who wants to spend all this time with someone you don't like, right? Like, you know someone doesn't really like you if it's like, hey, let's grab lunch. And it's like, yeah, let's go through the drive-thru. You know, we'll share that two-and-a-half-minute experience together because that's all I can tolerate of you. Like, and this dynamic, spending time, like you spent time with people you connected with, with people you liked. You didn't share a meal with just anyone. You see, eating with someone, it carried this deep, like almost mystical connection, connotation. Each individual, instead of ordering their own plate, one meal was brought and everyone shared from the same plate. They shared the same meal. The act of consuming the same food, it was intimate. What, what was entering and becoming part of you was also entering and becoming part of me. And so we did this. It was, it was in a sense, eating with someone claimed oneness, commonality. It's why, by the way, the Pharisees were so ticked off all the times that Jesus would eat with whom? With sinners. Because they're like, how could you associate, connect yourself, become one with those people? Understand, in eating with these Gentile believers, Peter was affirming two very important realities. One, because of grace, grace period, grace enough, there was no distinction between Jew and Gentile. The other thing Peter is, is, is hammering home here through his actions is that because of grace, he possessed the liberty to eat food that was prohibited in the dietary law of Moses. And yet, when these Jews came from his home church of Jerusalem, from James to Antioch, Peter, oh Peter, what does he do? He intentionally pulls back away from the table of fellowship. Not only does Paul see this as hypocritical behavior on the part of Peter, but he even takes it a step further in the next verse. Look at it, verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as Jews, why do you now compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Like, Notice what's happening here. It wasn't just that Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles when his Jewish brothers arrived that was Paul's issue. Paul was enraged at the fact that Peter was now also requiring the Gentiles to forgo their liberties and eat a Jewish kosher diet. Look at it. It explains why Paul not only withstood Peter for withdrawing and separating himself from the Gentiles when these men came from James, but look at it again. It also sheds light as to the accusation that Peter was seeking to, quote, compel Gentiles to do what? To live as Jews. Keep in mind, Paul's issue clearly wasn't the Gentiles, or Peter for that matter, eating non-kosher food around Jewish brothers who might have taken offense to it. Like, it's safe to reason that if this had been the case, that Paul would have would have commended Peter and the Gentiles' willingness to, you know, lay aside a liberty so as not to offend Jewish sensibilities. Instead, what appears to have ticked off Paul was the, was the fact that Peter not only was being hypocritical concerning the enjoyment of his own liberty, but that he was now actively limiting the liberties of the Gentiles. 
Paul moved into action in a hurry. And we have to ask, why would Peter do such a thing? Peter. Like, yeah, you know the guy that took the gospel to the Gentiles originally? Acts chapter 10, who God had said to him, what I've cleaned, let no one call common, eat three times just to get it through his thick skull. That Peter, like why would he at this point do such a thing? Paul says, look at it, that Peter was to be blamed, and then fast forward, because, note the the motivator, he feared those who were of the circumcision. Like what did Peter fear? He's Peter. Well, there is no question that Peter knew grace afforded such freedoms to eat what you want for, for both the Gentile and the Jew. It's why he had, by the way, no problems eating with the Gentiles when he had first come to Antioch. But Peter also knew this, that there was a group of Jews within his home church who would be offended by not obeying the dietary laws of Moses. You see, Peter feared their enjoyment of liberty would cause a division with those who took offense at such liberties. So what does Peter do? In order to avoid offense and divisions that might come as a result, Peter makes the decision that it would be best that not only he, but the Gentiles lay aside their freedom for the sake of maintaining unity. And while on the surface... It's not hard for us to understand Peter's heart and his motivation, why he would take this approach. Paul blows a gasket. Paul loses his mind. And why? Because he viewed this approach to Christian liberty as, quote, not being straightforward about the truth of what? The gospel. The sad reality behind Peter's actions And what is often the fundamental driver behind the trappings of legalism is not a failure to believe the gospel, but it's a failure to fully trust the gospel. At its core, Peter's problem occurred, why? Out of a fear of what could, might, or may happen. And what had these things done? They caused him to take his eyes off of Jesus. Peter did that all the time, didn't he? Why did he sink when he was walking on the water? He took his eyes off of Jesus. Over and over and over again, Peter makes mistakes. Why? When he takes his eyes off of Jesus. And this is, by the way, Holy Spirit-filled Peter, who still made mistakes when he took his eyes off of Jesus. Whereas fear will always cause an individual to fall back to the natural comfort provided in the law, because I can contain it, I can understand it, I can draw lines and boxes and fit in it. The liberty of grace, it requires something different. The opposite of fear, it requires total faith in Jesus the liberated. Paul, Paul had no problems with all of this. Like Paul was able to resist the trappings of legalism, this fear of liberty becoming sin. And you know why? 
He says it in, in Philippians 1 verse 6. Paul says this. He says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Do you trust Jesus? Do you trust that he knows what he's doing? Do, do you trust that when he sets a person free, that grace transforms a life? And if you throw any law, you're robbing the work of grace. That we should back off and let Jesus work. You know, some of you, and, and I'm, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to illustrate how easy it is to fall into the trappings of a non-grace mentality. There are some of you that are even thinking in your own life right now, man, I got to get some things together. Like, man, I, I've, been, I've been doing some, some things that are kind of legalistic. I got to fix these things. I got to do right. I got... Wrong. That's legalism. You can't do anything. That's using the law. Oh, my life's a mess. I need to, I, I, these 12 steps, if I can just get them in order. If I can work out a list and I can check it twice and I can make sure that, that I'm, I'm not naughty but nice then I'll be okay. Yes, Santa Claus is a legalist. You didn't know it. <laughs> See, the reality, don't use the law to, to change yourself because it doesn't work. It's just gonna fill you with condemnation and self-hate. Instead, come to Jesus. If you're having a problem in your marriage, the solution is simple. It's singular. It's not a bunch of rules you both now have to obey to get your junk worked out. It's just come back to the cross together and get your eyes back to Jesus. Because how can you hold something against another when Jesus did that? If you're in sin, blatant sin, it's not the law that's going to fix you. I can't, I give you a whole bunch of rules and regulations. That's not going to fix you. All that does is going to fill your heart with condemnation and drive you further away. Instead, I just tell you, look to Jesus. You see him on the cross? He did that for you. So that you could be free from that. So that you could be liberated from that. The law is just a diagnostic tool. When Jesus came to set us free, and man, we shouldn't be afraid of freedom. We should enjoy it. Because when Jesus has set you free, you are free indeed.